the experts. I'm your host, Michael DePoe-Wilson, and this is the second episode of this new series called Ask the Experts. And since this is only the second episode, here's a quick refresher. This is an interview podcast that is powered by you, our listeners. I will be asking questions that come directly from some of you to our very accomplished and knowledgeable guests who also happen to be leaders in the field of anesthesiology. And the best part is that you can ask questions for an upcoming guest or just something more general for any future guest of the show. And we are always open to hearing suggestions from all of you about who our next guest should be. To submit a question or give us a recommendation for the show, you can email us at anpresents at mcmahonmed.com. That's spelled M-C-M-A-H-O-N-M-E-D.com. Or reach out to us on Twitter at Anesthesia News, and I'll include details for both of those in the description of the episode. And now, let's get to the interview with this episode's guest, Dr. Amy Pearson. Dr. Pearson is a clinical assistant professor and a pain management specialist at the University of Iowa Healthcare. She is also the immediate past president of Women in Anesthesiology, which is an organization that focuses on the professional and personal development of women anesthesiologists, as well as promoting a culture of inclusivity and diversity in the specialty. Here's Dr. Amy Pearson. The Anesthesiology News e-newsletter is a free resource from the most widely read publication for the specialty. Get the latest clinical news and multimedia content delivered right in your inbox. Go to anesthesiologynews.com slash enews to sign up today. Okay, and welcome to the show, Dr. Amy Pearson, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Michael. So before we get into some of the questions that we're going to talk about, I was going to ask if you could just tell us a little bit about your background um, leading up to becoming an anesthesiologist. You know, it's always fun to learn about anesthesiologists who are well-established. You're, you know, you're doing a lot of great work. You're serving as a leader in the, in the specialty, all sorts of research and everything. But you know, where did you get started is, is kind of always fun to, to go back and, and revisit that. So could you tell us when did you first know that you wanted to be an anesthesiologist? Yeah, I didn't know I wanted to be an anesthesiologist until my third year rotations. And I did a rotation uh, at the Medical College of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, where I'm from. And uh, I got to go to the Children's Hospital. And my mentor was really awesome about letting me do a bunch of procedures. And a lot of things clicked at that time. So originally, I was an ICU nurse and a radiology nurse before I became a physician. And I thought that I was going to do an internal medicine subspecialty because I'm a big nerd and I like that stuff. But I realized how much I liked procedures and uh, anesthesiology had all of those things for me. You could be in all sorts of parts of the hospital. There's really intense situations, but also really laid back and fun uh, situations as well. And you can take care of people of all ages and all medical conditions. So it, it was the perfect fit. 
Okay, so let's get into the first question. So this comes from a tweet that was about a recent cross-sectional study that found that the NIH funding was not associated with more female faculty. Uh, and crucially here, it even showed that where there were increases in female faculty, they were modest compared to increases with women's matriculation in medical schools. So the question that I have for you is, why is that? Yeah, well, first of all, I have to give a shout out to the first uh, author, Dr. Elizabeth Malenzak, who is the current president of Women in Anesthesiology. So I have so much respect for her and the work she's doing. And another shout out to her sponsor, um, Dr. Swami Nathan, who uh, is just amazing and very supportive of our work. So um, yeah, to get back to your question, um, why are we not seeing these same increases in female faculty, especially senior female faculty getting NIH grants, um, even though we know that it's not necessarily a pipeline problem because women have been a high percentage of medical students since the 90s, really. And why, you know, that's an entire career, you know, so the senior women, like they should be about 40% uh, representation here. And um, I think we really need to reckon with that and start working on it starting now because we already have an underrepresentation in our early career women faculty. I think whenever we talk about getting funding and getting uh, support for senior levels, it's really a big issue of mentorship and sponsorship. So the difference between mentorship and sponsorship is that mentorship is usually somebody at about the same rank or level as you who can provide guidance, um, feedback, sounding board, um, and really help uh, help you solidify your research ideas and um, get new ideas. Whereas a sponsor is somebody who is in a more senior level who can really take you and take your name and put you out there and give you new opportunities. So women need both of these. And when we think about women trying to move up into more senior uh, positions, they really are going to need the help of not just senior women, but senior men as well, because there are simply not enough senior women to sponsor all of the other uh, women rising. So sponsorship is a huge one. Um, and then we also have to look at attrition. There are quite a bit of middle career women who are leaving academics and who are leaving um, research and, and getting these big grants um, significantly. Um, I would recommend that you read the article from Dr. Uche Blackstock about why she left medicine. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. And I think women, especially women in medicine, feel this acutely. There are a lot of competing demands. There's aging parents, there's children to raise, there's a career to launch. And I think when we talk about women in these careers, there's, there's added stresses. I think we have um, these expectations of emotional availability and time, not just from our, our children and spouses, but also at work. We're often the ones that are mediating um, disagreements among staff or called in to uh, help fix some kind of highly emotionally charged uh, situations. Um, and that can really wear on somebody without having an outlet. Um, we do a lot more extra hours on home and child care duties. The estimate is 8.5 extra hours per week. It's an entire shift. 
And then maybe most importantly, there's this effort reward imbalance. So there's a pay gap, there's a promotion gap, there's an awards gap, there's a position gap. So you work so, so hard and just seeing that there's nobody who looks like you in these places where you want to end up and nobody's sponsoring you to get there, um, it gets pretty exhausting and demoralizing. And a lot of women decide their their hard work and effort is better placed elsewhere where they feel that they can get that that reward for their effort. Okay. You mentioned the pay gap, and that actually leads seamlessly into the second question that I have. And, and this is pulled from a tweet that is about the pay gap in anesthesiology. And so this is from at EB Malinzak MD, and we'll put this tweet in the description. And she tweeted out, the pay gap in anesthesiology exists. Unpublished data from the at ASA Lifeline compensation study shows an 8% pay gap, which is equal to $32,000 a year or a million dollars over a career. Um, so the question I have for you is, is there a pay gap? What is that pay gap? Sounds like it's 8%, but also why does it exist? That is the literal million dollar question. And thank you for asking. Um, this does not just exist in anesthesiology, but it exists throughout medicine. Um, Doc Simity did a survey of 65,000 physicians and women on average were paid $105,000 less than men. That's that's huge, especially considering that they accounted for hours worked and seniority and all of these other factors that we would consider to be a difference. And it still remained. They also found that no city had more... Um, women paid more than men and no specialty had women paid more than men. This is pervasive. And in anesthesiology, you know, a lot of us might think, oh, well, it's just 8%, it's single digits, whatever. Um, but, you know, just looking at these numbers, I'm from Wisconsin and I looked up Wisconsin state income tax. It's 7.65%. So, that really changed my thinking about this. You know, I, I don't like paying taxes just like everybody else, but we do it. But why would women have to pay essentially another state income taxes worth of of pay for no reason? Is there anything that's being done to address this pay gap? That is a great question. And I'm actually not aware of anything formally being done to address the pay gap within anesthesiology or medicine through um, medical societies. Um, there is a lot of talk about it. I think a lot of societies are supportive of figuring things out, but we're talking about money here. And the only way to really fix this is going to take money and putting money in the right buckets. So I think we all need know what needs to be done, which is simply collect the information and take into consideration all the other factors. And if a pay gap remains, pay women what they're worth. Um, it's just easier said than done. Okay, let's go straight to question three. And question three features you actually in, in the tweet. So the tweet is at Amy Peterson, MD, uh, busting myths about women in medicine in grand rounds this morning. And it goes on to say that if residency shifted to milestone-based competency, 
that women would graduate three months later than their male colleagues. Three months. Emphasis added. So if not milestones, then what should be done? Yeah, so that data comes from a study of emergency medicine trainees. And what they found was that women who were in their very first year of training had milestone scores exactly the same as women. But then as they became more senior and in their PGY3 or senior year of emergency medicine residency, they peaked at milestone three, whereas the men peaked above milestone four. And when they looked further into this data, um, what really became clear was that um, women's feedback was not consistent. And they received a lot of discordant feedback about how they should act in terms of assertiveness and being leaders in their team. And really what became apparent was that there are people in levels of authority who just were not comfortable with women in assertive or authoritative roles. And that was hurting their scores. So um, I, I, it really does seem like the, the milestones are hampered by the fact that faculty may be biased and maybe a little bit uncomfortable with women in positions of authority. So then the question is, if not milestone, then what? So right now we have time-based um, anesthesiology training, and all, all residency training right now is time-based, where basically you must complete uh, a minimum level of procedures or um, patient types, but you also must complete in anesthesiology, it's 36 months of categorical anesthesia training in addition to an intern year. Um, I think that will probably continue, hopefully until we sort this uh, milestone information out. Um, so I think the biggest things are educating faculty, and that includes, um, you know, senior faculty, program directors, and even peers for residents about um, about biases. And with if you have enough of an N for your um, at least your quantitative data, you can actually z-score it so that it accounts for somebody's bias. If I think if we are going to go to milestone-based training, we have to account for the inherent bias in evaluations. We're going to move on to uh, another section of questions. So that, that wraps up our, our Twitter-based uh, questions. And that's some really great insights that you shared with us there. And we will post a link to all of those tweets so you can see more of that and some more information about, um, about what Dr. Pearson shared in, the, in her answers as well. Uh, so you can find all that in the show description. Now, moving on to this next section, uh, speaking of myth-busting from that last tweet, we have a special round two of questions this month. So a, it's going to be a myth-busting round. Now, I understand that you've given a talk focused on this specifically, busting myths and breaking down the common myths around um, around diversity, around equity, around inclusion. So the way we'll do this is that I'll make a statement that represents one of these commonly held beliefs or myths, and you will bust it for us. So it'll be kind of like a, a little bit of a rapid fire um, round, round two of questions. So we'll, uh, we'll jump right into it then. Myth number one, anesthesiology should be popular among women medical students. Is it bad that I still believe this myth? <laughs> 
<laughs> so, well, I guess that's why it's it's a myth, right? <laughs> yes, I personally believe anesthesiology should be popular among women medical students, but the fact is, it is not. If you look at the ten top specialties in terms of numbers, um, anesthesiology is the tenth when it comes to the representation of women medical students choosing anesthesiology. They choose surgery over us. They choose emergency medicine. They choose internal medicine, subspecialties, everything. And um, it's a little befuddling to me. And we don't have a good reason why. But what we know so far is that part of why women may not be choosing anesthesiology, um, one, is that they're not exposed to it. And a lot of medical st- schools are getting rid of anesthesiology in the third year core rotations. So they don't have even a chance to try anesthesiology or, um, or see what we're all about. The other thing is that if we have a low representation of women in anesthesiology, women medical students are going to see that. And we know that for every 1% increase in female faculty, there's a 1.45% increase in women trainees. So increasing faculty is really important. The other thing is when uh, women residents are looking at programs, what seems to be important to them is if there are other women residents in those programs. So I think there are a lot of things that maybe are modifiable that um, could get medical students more interested in anesthesiology. Okay. Yeah. And it's um, amazing. You mentioned that they're taking the requirement out of third year. How many times I've heard anesthesiologists say they chose anesthesiology because of that requirement. They they got into their third year and and they were doing the rotation with uh, anesthesiology and it opened their eyes to the possibilities there. So yeah, I can definitely see how that one would play a role. Um, So myth number two, if women don't choose our program or practice, we can't help it. Yeah, that's that's a great one. Um, and sometimes it might feel like that too, especially when you feel like you're trying really hard and nothing is happening. I did mention a couple of the modifiable factors uh, just a minute ago, but you know, part of that is just really advocating for getting women in the door and seeing how awesome anesthesiology or your practice is. Um, You know, there's that diversity portion where you just need the numbers, but then there's the equity and inclusion where um, women have to feel like, you know, they're heard, they're respected, and they have the same opportunities for leadership as well. So when you're thinking about working on all of these, this isn't something that you can change overnight. So don't get disheartened because doing the right thing over and over and over again, even though it feels like you're not moving the needle very much, these things take time because it's a cultural change and, you know, it starts years before. So if you're working on your medical students and getting them interested in anesthesiology, you're going to see that years down the road when it's time for them to become residents and then to become faculty. So keep up the good work and recruit more and more people in leadership positions to get behind you. Okay, moving to myth number three, and we've touched on this a little bit. Um, The myth is, if residents were allowed to graduate by just achieving their milestones, maybe it would be easier for women to take maternity leave in residency without making up the time. I would love for that to be true. Um, And maybe it will be if we can find a way to correct for faculty and evaluator biases. But right now we have not been able to quantitatively do that. And I think the biggest thing that we need to do next is 
to ask the American Board of Anesthesiology to really look into these, um, how we grade in anesthesiology and if there's any bias in the system, including in oral boards. What I worry about is that if we move to a milestone-based residency, which has been shown in other specialties to harm women's uh, chances of graduating on time, if someone takes a six or 12-week maternity leave on top of that, it could hurt them even more. So I really do want to applaud the ABA um, just recently for changing their um, their leave of absence policy to allow for any resident who needs to take a medical or childbearing leave uh, the option of graduating on time. That's really huge in terms of equity and um, really uh, helping the careers of residents who are either sick during residency or who bear children. Okay, and myth number four, it's a good thing harassment doesn't happen in the hospital or OR anymore. I can see why somebody might think that because we don't see these situations of, you know, the proverbial surgeon throwing knives or um, really overt uh, cases of gender discrimination. Um, However, I think what's happened is that it's gone a little bit underground. And um, sometimes these underground or these microaggressions can be even more hurtful because the overt ones you can identify right away and you can basically shut out like, wow, that was a sexist comment. I'm not even going to dignify that with an answer. However, these small ones um, can really get to you, especially when it comes from somebody in a leadership position or somebody that you really respect. And that can really wear down on somebody over the course of time. There is a really great uh, international study that was done by someone called Villafranca in 2019 in the Canadian Journal of Anesthesia. And they looked at sociodemographic predictors of personal exposure to disruptive behavior in the operating room. And wouldn't you know, um, women were had a relative risk of 1.23 compared to men of exposure to disruptive behavior. And then they looked at these other factors too, being age 30 to 40, so of prime you know, childbearing years and early career, um, the relative risk was 1.4 compared to those age 60 plus. And then anesthesiologists, even compared to nurses, their relative risk of exposure to disruptive behavior was 1.68, which was the highest. I actually wonder if this is part of why women medical students don't choose anesthesiology as often as they could. They observe disruptive behavior often directed at anesthesiologists. I mean, we all know about the blame anesthesia culture. It's real. And they say, I don't want any part in that. And, you know, this is really something that our specialty needs to reckon with. And um, we really need to hear the voices of women and especially women of intersectional identities when they do bring up exposure to disruptive behavior, because it takes a lot for even one woman to speak up. So when one of them whispers to you, consider it a shout. There are probably 10 more with a similar story. Okay, and uh, myth number five now. We need to flatten the hierarchy and call women by their first names. Oh, yes, the women who are called doctor are elitist. Uh, Yes, I've heard this one a lot. 
So one of my other hats is um, in the patient safety world, and I am scouring and reviewing the patient safety literature um, just about every day. And I have done a deep dive into the literature trying to figure out where this myth came from that calling people by their first names in the hospital um, results in anything good for patient safety. And I haven't seen anything that supports this. I know in the military, as well as in aviation, this is a common practice. Um, I think that medicine is a little bit different, especially anesthesiology. And here's why. In anesthesiology, we only get a few minutes to see our patient and develop rapport and trust. And patients see probably 10, 10 people before they even get to the OR. It's very confusing for them to figure out who is in charge of their care, who is their doctor. And when somebody who is maybe young or female um, walks in and does not address themselves as doctor or is not addressed by the staff as doctor, they don't. it's very difficult for them to realize that you, in fact, are the physician who is in charge of the anesthesia care for that patient of that day. So um, so that's one way that it's a little bit different. Also in the operating rooms, it's very common for members of the team to not really know who each other are on that personal basis. So we, are, we wear gowns where our name badges are covered up. The anesthesiologist is behind a screen. The orthopedist is wearing a big hood over his or her head. Um, so we don't even get the luxury of name tags to know who everybody is. So um, so when you're not familiar with your team, it's really hard to know without very clear identification who that person is because you can't go on what a typical anesthesiologist looks like. We all look different and we're going to look even more different in the coming years. And so myth number six now, the only reason there's a pay gap is because women work less hours and they don't negotiate. That is a great one. And um, I uh, I worked with the Proud Women's Group and uh, Dr. Julie Sil- Silver's uh, leadership um, looking into the pay gap even further. And this persists across specialties. And every study that, that we looked at that was of high quality took into account hours worked. And they took into account that, okay, maybe maybe women in the younger ages are, um, are more represented than women in senior ages. So that's why there's a gap. Just the quality studies have looked at that and they have accounted for that as well. The pay gap continues. So in anesthesiology, it's still 8% simply for gender, nothing else. And even uh, this pay gap study that Dr. Melanzak had referenced, um, negotiating salary was only accounting for maybe a percentage or two in terms of um, in terms of the gap. So even if a woman would negotiate, that would only make it budge a slight bit. And we all know that for a woman to negotiate, it's a minefield. You have this likability tax, so y- you want to be... Um, seen as a, a good worker, you want to be offered the job, but you also want to be paid well for 
what you're what you're doing and you don't want to be punished for being perceived as too aggressive when you ask for what you want right um okay so myth number seven it's easy to have kids in medical school residency and practice i have to say i can't imagine how this one would be true (laughs) it's hard in all of those you are absolutely correct um I I think this comes up so often for women trainees who are trying to figure out how they want their family to look, whether they're going to have children at all and when. And it would be great if we could have a definitive answer that, yes, medical school is the right time or practice is the right time. And that's assuming that everybody is at feeling that they're at the right stage of life at that time. Some people are not ready to have children until... Um, you know, they're well into practice. Some people are ready, like I was in medical school. Um, So what we found is, shockingly, there is no right time. Um, When we surveyed the women of the American Society of Anesthesiologists, it turned out that more than 10% of them would counsel a woman against a career in anesthesiology due to issues related to motherhood. This is really sad to me. um, But I can actually see why that would be. When we looked further into the data, uh, what really what really became apparent was that the unique thing about these women who would counsel against anesthesiology were more likely to say that they had to change the age at which, that, at which they wish they had kids and the number of children that they had because of all their work demands. Um, whereas women who uh, would counsel for a career in anesthesiology were not um, as likely to have changed or altered their um, childbearing plans. Um, And then we looked at all these other factors too. Okay, well, maybe women wouldn't counsel against anesthesiology if they had longer maternity leaves, if they had exposure to other women in their training program, if they had children in practice, if they had children at all. All of those other factors did not matter. What mattered was that the woman felt that they could choose the timing and the age at which she wished to have children. I thought that was really powerful and a testament to autonomy. You know, even if you get a four-week maternity leave, if the woman's cool with that, that's not going to affect her thoughts on anesthesiology. What matters is that she feels that she had control over these decisions about her fertility. And it's interesting because you, I don't know if you've seen this report. It just came out, I think, a couple of days ago. There's, um, I think, CBS News had a, a long article about um, there's just not as many people having children. Um, I think some of the experts were even calling it a crisis that there's just broadly people aren't having as many kids now as they as they used to. Um, and, and I, you know, I think they mentioned a lot of similar things that you mentioned. Obviously, that's. Obviously, that's heightened when you consider, um, you know, the stress that comes with med school and residency and and all of that as well. So that's very interesting. I think the social supports that used to be there just simply aren't there. You know, thinking about having to pay for a child's education, paying for their health care, paying for their child care. I mean, as a resident, that that almost sunk us, um, to be honest. And um you know, it's harder for, for example, for grandparents to take care of children because they have to work themselves to keep their health care. So we just don't have as much of that social safety net, at least in the United States, um, to allow for more um, children to be born. 
Moving on to myth number eight. Mothers going part-time are the reason there's a physician shortage. I love that you asked me this one because it's one of my favorite myths to bust. So um, there's a little bit of truth in that, in that um, physicians going part-time has actually increased quite a bit, um, about 62% of an increase. And yes, women of um, kind of uh, early motherhood ages, you know, 35 to 44, um, 40 percent of them are part-time so that is a good chunk of young physicians working part-time and this may be part-time as in you know 0.8 where they work four instead of five days a week um, you know I think some people think of part-time as oh they only work a couple of hours a week that's <laughs> very rare for physicians but the other fastest growing segment of people going part-time are actually senior male physicians approaching retirement um, you know the AAMC actually did a um, a deep dive into this, and they estimated that retirement scenarios are really the most extreme physician supply projections. And their biggest swings in projections had to do with when the senior physicians retire. So if they retire earlier, it's tens of thousands of a difference. And if they retire later, it helps us by tens of thousands of doctors. Um, they also looked at millennial hours, which to me is code for, you know, early years of parenting um, hours. And that only was a change of just a few thousand. So you can see the big, enormous swings have to do with um, senior physicians retiring and also GME expansion. But that's only if we actually are able to expand and fund residency slots with Medicare money. Um, the AAMC also in that same report found that women compared to in the 1980s are working many more hours um, except in residency um, compared to the men were at the time. So, um, so you can see women have increased their average daily work hours compared to 1980 significantly. Okay. And, and I should actually mention here, and, and we had a great, um, a great talk with you about this for the last season of The Etherist, where we really got into a lot of the physician shortage um, topics. Uh, interestingly, I don't think we covered very much about the part-time uh, aspect of it, especially like how that how that part-time into retirement um, will impact it. But I mean, yeah, we, there's a lot of information out there about what a physician shortage is, when we can expect it to get worse. Um, and and so yeah, we'll, we'll link to that article and we'll link to the... To, the uh the your interview in the etherist as well so people can check that out so myth number nine there's a shortage of women leaders and professors because historically they were not as well represented in medicine yes so i kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier but actually women have been at least 40 percent of medical students since 1992 so that's the entire career span of virtually any woman in medicine right now. And um, let's see, 2019, women were 52.4% of medical students. So we really can't say that the pipeline is the problem. The pipeline's been there for every single woman that is currently practicing medicine. And we need to think a little bit more about why these women are not in these positions of leadership. And we really can't be blaming a woman's family or their lifestyle for um, lack of being in a leadership position. It doesn't have to do with, you know, their availability at 2 a.m. on 
of Sunday night. It has to do with their qualities of leadership and their effectiveness. And for our very last myth, myth number 10, women have several deficiencies they need to fix in order to be successful. I call this the leaning in problem. Um, If you probably remember, Sheryl Sandberg wrote a book called Leaning In, which was a manifesto in encouraging women to work hard and lean in towards those leadership roles. And um, while I think that's really good, and if you direct message me, I will be a huge supporter and proponent of all of your career aspirations, whichever way they may go. Um, But that's only a little part of it. So you can push and you can change and you can work as hard as you can, but there's still barriers that are outside of your control. Um, Just like we talked about those senior residents getting their feedback that was really discordant, this still happens for women in leadership. So, okay, you should negotiate more. I negotiated, I negotiated, I negotiated. Well, you know what? There's still that 7 to 8% pay gap that has nothing to do with how hard you negotiate. And I feel like women are getting encouraged to work so hard against a brick wall and then beating themselves up that they only move the needle about 2% when they were expecting to move it 7 or 8%, for example. What we really need to look into is why we think women are deficient in the first place. It's not their problem. It's the problem of the culture that does not acknowledge and respect the work of women the same way that it respects the work of men. And that wraps up our myth-busting section. So thank you very much, Dr. Pearson, for going through that rapid-fire round of myths and and discussing a lot of those. And um, we will have uh, links posted. We'll have uh, more details about all of of your answers that we'll put in the show description so that if you're interested in in some of the articles that were mentioned, you'll be able to find all more details into all that. Obviously, you shared a lot of great statistics, so it's not just about, um, you know, as, as you were saying, you you know, it's not just that we're busting these myths because, you know, well, that's outdated, that's not true anymore, or no, that's just wishful thinking. Um, there's hard numbers behind all of the things that you said, and, and really to a granular detail sometimes that is really impressive, and it's it reflects a lot of hard work uh, on your part and on the parts of many other researchers and, and clinicians. So we'll share all of that in the show description so you can dig through it. Um, there's you know hours and hours of fun there. Um, so we'll move on to the last round of our interview with Dr. Pearson and get into the personal stuff. Um, so this is just kind of a fun way to wrap up our time with you today uh, to kind of get some more um, insights from you. U- usually not not clinical stuff, um, you know, and not not always professional stuff. Even just sort of like uh, you know things that you're enjoying, things that are inspiring you, and. In, in, um, and getting you through the day sometimes. So the first question I have for you is, do you have a favorite book, movie, or podcast, or TV show that you have recently been just really, um, really enjoying? Yeah, that is a great question. Um, I kind of got away from like all this entertainment stuff because I've just been working so hard. But one thing I do love to do is knit. So most of my favorites have to do with uh, different knitting patterns, I guess. And I realized that I can listen to audiobooks while I do that. So I'm getting more into that. Um, my 
my interests most recently have been more in the medical humanism side of things. So I've been kind of um, reading and just thinking about philosophy as it relates to um, how we see ourselves and how we interact with other humans. Um, you know, I'm I'm in one of the most more uh, stressful subspecialties in medicine, um, taking care of patients who are in chronic pain, which is in incurable disease in many cases. So um, thinking about ways to minimize burnout and also um, help to still be a healer. I found uh, the Brene Brown books to be especially helpful in terms of, you know, kind of staying soft, but also holding boundaries. Great. Thank you so much for those recommendations. Uh, and the very last question um, I've got for you is um, just to ask if you could leave us with something profound or inspiring that you've heard lately. Yeah, I just wrote this one down in my notebook. It's from Maya Angelou. It goes, success is liking yourself, liking what you do, and liking how you do it. And I keep coming back to that and using that as a measuring stick for what I say yes to and what I say no to. Um, and one other one, if you'll humor me here, um, I have a coach and my coach just said this last week, which I thought was really profound. She said, you seem to be looking for community. And she said, I wonder if you're confusing communities with collectives. And that I thought was so illuminating because a community is where people respect and appreciate you just for being who you are. And I think of a collective as someplace where you're appreciated for the work you do. And I think if we're going to get back to healing in medicine, both with our patients and among each other, we need to become more of a community and appreciate each other for being who they are rather than for what they do for us. Great. Well, thank you so much for both of those uh, words of wisdom and uh, for everything, for all, all of your insights today. It was really great getting to catch up with you. And uh, thank you so much for joining us on our second ever episode of Ask the Experts. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much to Dr. Pearson for being our guest here on Ask the Experts, and thank you to all of you for joining us. Now I would like to formally announce that our next guest for the show is going to be Dr. Karen Seibert. She is a clinical professor of anesthesiology and the director of communications in the Department of Anesthesiology and Perioperative Medicine at UCLA Health. If you have a specific question for Dr. Seibert, or just a general question, then you can send that to us either by email at anpresents at pickmanmed.com or connect with us on Twitter at Anesthesia News. And if you enjoyed the show, remember to leave us a rating or review because it helps others discover the show as well. And as always, thank you for listening. Anesthesiology News Presents Ask the Experts was produced this month by me, Michael DePoe-Wilson. It was edited by Ken Christensen. Music for this episode comes from Blue Dot Studios. Our editorial director is James Pruden. 
The rest of the team is Richard Tordo, Justin Kaback, Blake Dennis, Betty Zong, Kristen Janicone, Lucia Scanlon, Kwang Yi Chung, Sophia Lee, and Sam Steinfeld. Ask the Experts is a project of Anesthesiology News, the most widely read publication for the specialty, and the McMahon Publishing Group.